I think it really strengthens our collective history when we acknowledge things that we really haven't acknowledged or that we've sort of glossed over. I am Patty Callahan, and welcome to the podcast, The Untold Story Behind Surviving Savannah, a novel about an 1838 steamship disaster that many refer to as the Titanic of the South. This podcast is an in-depth exploration into the true stories behind the novel. You'll hear interviews with some of the foremost experts on the myth and lore of the mystical city of Savannah, shipwreck treasure hunting, museum curation of maritime history, and the astounding real-life family that inspired this novel. I'm the author, Patty Callahan. Today, we're talking to Wendy Melton about the hidden and untold stories in maritime history, about being a museum curator, and about the Ships of the Sea Maritime Museum and the stories that wait in its hallways. The museum was founded in 1966 in a historical house in Savannah, Georgia, with nine galleries of ship models, maritime paintings, and artifacts, almost all of it revealing stories of Savannah's rich history. As for Wendy Melton, she has been with the Ships of the Sea Museum for 15 years, currently as the interim executive director and curator of exhibits and education. Welcome, Wendy. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I want to dive right in and start talking about the reason I met you in the first place. Mm -hmm. The reason I found the Ships of the Sea Maritime Museum, and that is our beloved steamship Pulaski. Yes. It is the one of how many, how many ships are in the Ships of the Sea? Well, there are around 20 models, which are built to the same scale as the Pulaski, which is three eighths of an inch equals one foot. And they are located primarily on the first floor of the museum. And these 20 models were commissioned for the museum um, because they each represent a facet of Savannah's maritime history that had a national and sometimes even a global impact. We have more models upstairs um, that um, represent um, other um, avenues in the museum, but they're not built to the same scale as the Pulaski. So the Pulaski is built to that scale along with the Savannah steamship and, and a bunch of others, the Wanderer. Correct. They're all built to the same scale. They're all in these nine different galleries. So I wonder how many people walk past these intricate and beautifully researched models and look into the ships and, and see the tiny little details and the people walking around and inside the hull. And they admire it, but they walk right past it without knowing its hidden history. I know I did. So unless you have a, a museum curator walking around telling you the stories, you might not know. So why was the steamship Pulaski chosen not only to be built, but to be put in this museum? Well, our focus is Savannah's um, maritime history and how that history impacted us nationally and, and globally. And the, and the Pulaski 
fits well within the realm of, of that mission because it, it did have a national and global impact when the ship foundered it was because of the problem with the boiler and there was no trained engineer on board. So after it foundered, it was there was a, a regulation that you had to have a, um, a trained engineer, much like what happened with the Titanic. When the Titanic sank, it was revealed that there weren't enough lifeboats for all the passengers. And so there were regulations that were changed. So it's a story um, and that's wh why the Pulaski has been referred to as the, Savannah, the Titanic of the South, because it's a story much like what happened with the Titanic in 1912. Only this story is in 1836. What's even more fascinating is in the reasoning for being in the museum, not only did it change maritime laws, but it involved very influential Savannah families. Right. There were numerous passengers from Savannah and it's, it's rumored or one of the Telfair sisters wrote in her, one of her journals that she was supposed to be on the ship and didn't go because she had a bad feeling about it. Unfortunately, the Gazaway Bug Lamar family did not have a bad feeling about it, mm -hmm. and they had a really good feeling about it, and they all were there, all 11 of them. He yes. took his wife and his six children and his six sister and his niece, and as we know, one of the young boys who survived, Charles Lamar, became later in his life a slave trader. He used his survival to make terrible choices in his life. And we'll talk more about that. But in the museum, the Wanderer, which is the slave ship that he commandeered, is right next to the Pulaski. You can stand between them and touch them. And I wonder how many people can see that hidden story running back and forth between those two ships in your museum. Was this done on purpose? Did you put them next to each other to tell a kind of a secret hidden story? Well, I think that it was. Unfortunately, I wasn't here when they were um, put in the museum, but there is such a strong connection between the Pulaski and the Wanderer. It's, it's an unfolding tragedy that moves from one family's generation to another. Wow, I like that. It's an unfolding tragedy. Because it wasn't just the explosion of the Pulaski that was the tragedy. It's what he did with his life for the next ship that right. he that he was able to. And what a tragedy that was. Oh, it, and and the history of that and the unfolding of it. And I love that they're. I don't love that it happened. I love that they're right next to each other, so that if you want to know the story, you can you can see the connection between the two. I think that all of your exhibits and exhibits in general are like a story, a visual story um, that, especially in the Ships of the Sea Museum, it's like a curated unfolding story as you go from gallery to gallery and, and floor to floor. All the exhibits tell a bigger and wider story. Is, is that the intention? How do you decide how to divide up the galleries and rooms, which artifacts to put where? How, how does that work? Because it is an unfolding story. Well, yes, I, I agree that exhibits and the, that are within galleries are a story. And sometimes, as with a book, 
they uh, they provide a, a visual narrative, but an emotional and intellectual one that helps us understand the world a little better. And just like in, in books, exhibits should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And oh, I the love artifacts, that. the artifacts chosen for an exhibit should have a purpose and, and move the the story forward, just like characters in a book. Oh, Wendy, I love that. I'd love that it's not just a bunch of stuff gathered and put out, but that it's actually trying to tell a story. Since the exhibits and the galleries are telling a story, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and they unfold as you go along, can you think of an exhibit that, like a story, has changed the minds or hearts in Savannah? You've done some incredible exhibits, including one I remember about the trash in our rivers. I know you've done them on the war. I know you've done them on the steamship Savannah, one on the house that we'll talk about in a minute where this is where you are. So what is one exhibit that you can think of that has changed the minds or hearts in Savannah? Well, thank you for mentioning our exhibit on on water pollution. That was an exhibit, a a collective of artists and um, and environmental groups that helped to um, help to bring that exhibit to fruition and and um, exemplify what's going on in not only our local but our global waters. Um, One of the things that I think of when we're discussing exhibits that have helped change perspectives is that. in the past few years, and this isn't necessarily our museum, but in the past few years, uh, many of the local museums here in Savannah have really begun telling the story of Savannah's enslaved population, what is termed urban slavery. And the propulsion of this movement has really served to enrich the fabric and texture of Savannah's collective history and provided deeper insights into the development and structure of our local culture. Shannon Browning Mullis, who was one of the curators for the Telfair and the Thomas Owens Slave Quarters Museum. I will be talking to her on this podcast series also. And that's one of her and mine in writing historical fiction. Main thrusts is, is not to retell the mythology of a place, but to find the untold part and not just keep retelling the myth of it. And, and it's amazing that museums, as well as historical fiction, as well as nonfiction, can bring us to the place where we see a city we love so much like Savannah, but with clearer eyes. You know, we yes. take away that mythology and we look at it with clearer eyes and can love it even more. I think it really strengthens our collective history when we acknowledge things that we really haven't acknowledged or that we've sort of glossed over. Um, Looked away from. Want, right, because we don't want to address them. Um, well, the romantic mythology is always a bit bit more comforting than yes. some of the harder truths, but the fuller story is always more interesting and and keeps us moving in a better direction, I think. So speaking of exhibits, right now we have planned that next March of 2022 was supposed to be this March, but you know, COVID, (laughs) but we'll be having a full exhibit of the artifacts that were found at the bottom of the ocean from the steamship Pulaski. 
almost 200 years. I always am amazed to think about that. Those artifacts have been sitting down there and are right now being brought up. Why is it important to bring them up and tell history through them? Does it tell us something about ourselves, about our city? And most importantly, how will the new Palacio exhibit tell a little bit different story for Savannah? In regards to the Pulaski exhibit, um, I, I really think it's going to highlight some of the um, cultural and technological influences that really affected Savannah in the first hundred years of our history. Because in that first hundred years, Savannah was a very cosmopolitan city booming with ideas and innovations. And it was due to these influences that allowed for the steamship Savannah to be the very first steamship to cross the Atlantic Ocean. And, and these influences also account for the huge amounts of wealth gained by local merchants like Gazaway Bug Lamar, who built and owned a ship of dreams known as the Pulaski. So I, I also think that this exhibit is going to touch people on a very visceral level because this story involves ordinary people in an extraordinary circumstance. And every human emotion and behavior were present the night the Pulaski foundered. Incompetence, bravery, cowardice, grief, selfishness, and heroism. And I think if I do my job right for the exhibit, it's going to be extremely easy for museum guests to envision themselves on board the Pulaski and consider how they would have behaved. Wow. And when I was doing my research, I was thinking about exactly what you just said. And one of the themes that kept rising up for me, and we've talked about this, is the idea of how to survive the surviving. What happens after you survive? What the artifacts and bringing them up have shown me is exactly what you're talking about, which is how these people lived, what was important to them, Mm -hmm. what they took with them, and then what they chose to do if they survived and they had lost all of that. So the story of it blowing up is one thing. The story of survival is another, but the story of their lives that shone and unfolds in those artifacts is, I think, the most interesting part to you and me. Yes, they are. You know, I remember um, years ago, Years ago, I went to see an exhibit on the Titanic, and it was full of exhibits, I mean, full of artifacts um, that were brought up from from the vessel. Um, But the the one item that really moved me the most was a pocket watch, and it had stopped at around the exact time the Pulaski went under the waves, um, around three o'clock in the morning. And the most amazing thing, and it just gives me chill bumps when I think about it, because you just think about the finality of that. And one of the things that the excavation group has been able to find for the Pulaski is almost the exact same thing, a pocket watch that was stopped at the time the Pulaski exploded. Um, And it, you know, again, it just brings to mind the finality, the, the, um, you know, if you think of things in, 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 in a liminal vi- vision, here is that that window that ushered in one moment to the next. Um, so 
I'm extremely excited to see the artifacts and um, how we can utilize them and, and what type of symbolism they represent to the people who were lost aboard the, from the Pulaski. One of the other artifacts that hit me in the heart, like it was like this punch to the solar plexus, was when they found Rebecca Lamar's luggage tag. Right. I chose one person and her accounting of that night to really focus on unfolding this story. I wanted to tell it from a woman's point of view. And it her name, her real name was Rebecca Lamar. And in the book, her name is Augustus Longstreet. But it is the only luggage tag they have found. That's remarkable. It, I mean, and it's it just this woman's whose story I was telling. So these these artifacts unfold a lot more than just things at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Exactly. So my main character, Everly, is a history professor, and she guest curates the exhibit of the Pulaski at the museum. So I do not fictionalize the ships of the sea. I really have her guest (laughs) curating an exhibit there. And when we go to museums, we rarely know about the people behind the scenes, like you, who decide what artifacts must tell the story. And history, as you showed us, and as we're talking about, has so many hidden strings. It's like this spider web of all these strings that attach us. And one of those is the house where the Ships of the Sea Museum lives. It is the William Scarborough House, and it was built in 1819. And it was built, you can't make this up, for one of the chief financiers of the steamship Savannah, which is a sister, if I can call her that, of the steamship Pulaski. And I love when history collides in that way. So tell me about the museum's history and its future. I have to tell you, it is a gem of Savannah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, Ships of the Sea was founded in 1966 by uh, banker Mills B. Lane Jr. And he was president of CNS Bank, which at the time was the largest bank in the South. And Mr. Lane was an avid collector of anything and everything maritime. Um, So he utilized his private collection to fill his museum on River Street. And in the 1990s, his son, Mills B. Lane IV, who was a scholar and a historian and a preservationist, focused the museum's mission to the interpretation of Savannah's maritime history. And he also moved the museum to the William Scarborough House, which is a National Historic Landmark. And just a little bit more about about William Scarborough. So he was the president of the Savannah Steamship Company, um, which, and the primary financial backer, which launched the steamship Savannah, the first steamship to cross the Atlantic Ocean. As you mentioned, his home was built in 1819 and was designed by one of Savannah's preeminent architects, William J. And Scarborough House is the one of the earliest examples of domestic Greek architecture in the South. And we also have the largest private gardens in the historic district as well. The gardens are extraordinary. Even when the museum was closed during COVID or I'm visiting and it's off hours, I go to the gardens. They, oh, they really are you. extraordinary. Yeah, they, they comprise an entire city blocks and they're open free every single day. Oh, they're beautiful too, especially in the spring. They're astounding in the spring. So a museum curator, which is what you are, sometimes called a gallery curator, manages all the collections of works of art and artifacts. And this is a very simple explanation for a very complicated job. So to turn the attention on you for a second, because my main character, this is her job, 
I think everybody's going to love to hear how you fell into this job and, and what it entails on kind of a day-to-day basis, what your history is to be able to do this extraordinary job. Well, I began at the museum 15 years ago, and honestly, I came here from another museum where I worked in the education department, um, but I started off here as an interpreter and um, gradually worked on, on education programs and became an operations manager and then the curator, and right now I'm serving as the interim executive director. But as a curator, I think that it is fundamentally important for you to understand um, when it comes to the collection of artifacts and art and their display, um, you need to have a fundamental understanding of the goals and the mission of your institution. Um, An item that may have significant historical value, but, you know, if it doesn't fall within your institution's bailiwick, bailiwick, it's really out of your purview to um, to interpret it, and it would be better served elsewhere for interpretation, management, and display. So every item um, in the museum is is carefully considered, um, not only for the institution but for the item itself. Because if it's worthy of an interpretation and of being preserved, it it should be located at the best institu- institution that can provide that. It's fascinating. When I was doing my research, I. I had one of those, well, that's a job I'd love kind of moments. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things I did when I first decided to tell this story was come straight to you. And thankfully, you gave me piles of information, old articles, old chapters out of books, information I couldn't find. And for those of you out there who think you can find everything on Google, I'm here to tell you to get out and get your hands dirty, go to the museums I went to the Georgia History Center. I dug through boxes. I looked for things that hadn't been yet utilized. And I discovered that one of the things that hadn't been done yet for the Pulaski was a full manifest. That there were articles and chapters and books and partial manifests and lists of people that mattered because they were important or they had survived or they had perished in a way that brought their their name to the newspaper, but there wasn't a full manifest. And it took me a really long time, much longer than I thought, to scour through every article and book and and make a full manifest as, as best I could for the first time. And it's in the book, and we'll be talking about it um, when we have our exhibit. But how do you feel about this mutual storytelling of artifacts and museums and books. I know in the guest shop, you sell books about ships and shipwrecks, both narrative nonfiction and fiction. So does it increase or add to the record? How do you feel as a curator about the blending of those two things? Oh, yes, it's it certainly it certainly adds to um, adds to the record. And I just want to say that it's it's fantastic that you were able to complete the Pulaski's Manifest. You know, a few years ago, Eric Colonius wrote a book about the slave ship Wanderer, which we discussed earlier. And much like the story of the Pulaski, the story of the Wanderer was somewhat lost to time. As a result of Eric's book, increased interest in the Wanderer produced a local walking tour, programs on urban slavery, and a memorial 
at Jekyll Island where the wanderer, wanderers captives landed. So I just, I can't wait to see the interest your book is going to stimulate in the Pulaski. Oh, you're so kind. And yes, Eric is one of our podcast interviewees in this series too. Oh, and and when he told me about that, about, about what happened when he decided to tell the hidden part of the wanderer, it's, it's extraordinary. So I think that is the perfect place to end. Wendy, thank you so much for talking to us. Your job is fascinating. The museum is fascinating. And I love that the museum and the novel itself are, are dovetail into a new way of understanding the city of Savannah. I believe I will. Thank you very much, Patty. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you so much for joining me today on the untold story behind Surviving Savannah. If you liked what you heard, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, as that really helps new listeners find our show. Make sure to subscribe to the untold story of Surviving Savannah wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can visit penguinrandomhouse.com for more on my new book, Surviving Savannah. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold. This has been a production of Penguin Random House, and I'm Patty Callahan. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>